I met a priest from Ireland once, and somebody asked him, what's St. Patrick's Day like in Ireland? He said, well, it's a day off from work, a day off from school. You get up, you go to Mass, and then you go home and have a nice meal, and then it's a quiet day of prayer. Wow, that's awesome. That is not how St. Patrick's Day is in the United States. Oh my gosh, dude. Could you imagine? Well, a lot of the American Irish traditions are sort of bastardized Irish things. Like corned beef and cabbage, apparently, is oh, yeah. food that no one in Ireland would be caught dead eating. Oh, really? Um, Nobody sings Danny Boy in Ireland. It's, all, it's, all, it's kind of like American Mexican food in Taco Bell. American Italian food is Olive Garden. American St. Patrick's Day is get hammered on the south side of Chicago in a green plastic hat. Three Dogs North is an attempt to objectify the subjective with little violence as possible. The following has been torn from its origins in space and time and put entirely at your disposal. I have it at 4.30 this morning. What? The uh, oh, St. Mary Vernon Pets shelter. Oh, man. The morning shift. So it's really, it's cool to go. Friday mornings because people the people get up and um, they go and eat breakfast and they leave pretty quick but I don't know it's good so you help them clean up you're out of there by like six thirty mm-hmm. is that like a soup kitchen <clears throat> uh, pads is uh, it's, I call it a traveling I I think it it is it's a traveling homeless shelter so there's mm-hmm. a central site in Chicago and then different parishes or uh, different churches around the area host a night per week. So St. Mary, the, and then the bus takes the people there. So they get there at like 6.30 in the evening. They get uh, a good supper. And so it's, it's very cool because it's only one night a week, so they do it well. So they have their beds set up for them. They serve them dinner. And then they put on a movie and the people can sleep. They get up at like 5.30 in the morning, they get a hot breakfast, and they get like a sack lunch to take with them. They get back on the bus, and they they go. So it's good. It's really good. There's a lot of kids there, which is really kind of tough some mornings. Mm-hmm. There's this guy, Max, that I've been talking to the past few weeks. He's probably like in his mid-50s or so, and said, I don't know what happened that he lost everything, but I mean, he's pretty obviously a guy that homelessness is new. Do him. Mm, yeah. So it's just devastating to talk to him in some ways. Um, but I don't know, at the same time, you know, he's just got a lot of, a lot of joy. And he's always optimistic about, like, hey, I hope I don't, I don't see you next week. Or, nice. um, yeah. That seems to me to be one of the things that's kind of unsung about what seminarians of Mundelein do, which is all this work with the poor. Yeah. People talk about learning Aquinas and making beautiful chapels and this, that, and the other thing, but you guys are all going out to places, whether it's the sisters with the early angels or the jail or the nursing homes. Yeah. It's an impressive business. I think that gets to the point of, like, Christianity is not, <laughs> we sit around here and we talk about this on our podcast, but Christianity is not a religion that you sit around and talk about, you know? It's something that has to be lived, has to be experienced as part of the gospel. Um, but I'm super, I'm super glad that we get to do all that stuff because I think those experiences shape the type of priest that we're going to be and the type of seminaries that we are now. Um, because it's one thing, again, to, to pray about it and talk to Christ about it and 
see what he says, see what he tells us to do, then to go out and apply that and really see how that impacts your life. It's it'll rock your world. It's where the rubber meets the road. It's where the rubber meets the road. St. James all week in the mass reading. Yeah. Dude, just, he doesn't play games. He's got no time no. for people that are like, oh, we got the right ideas and that's all that matters. Mm-hmm. Like, show me your faith <laughs> without your works and I will show you my faith by my works. Yeah. Son. You know, like, take that. I don't know how else you can take that by what yeah. you just said. Yeah, it's like faith means you do something. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think I would honestly, I would go, I would probably go crazy if we didn't have some type of field ed yeah. like that to be able to, honestly, just to go and work with people. Last year I was at the the juvenile center in Vernon Hills, and that was really cool. So you just went and talked to kids that were. You know, their lives were almost always just a complete wreck. And they would tell you their story, and it just made you ask the question, like, man, why in the world was I so blessed growing up? Mm-hmm. And, you know, you could take it to prayer and be like, well, now I can go back and, you know, just be there for for them and that. Or even, like, working with the, the homeless. The PAD site is interesting. And they said this this would be the case, but it's predominantly, and this is just, it, it, you know, it's one of those, it's a reality, but it's predominantly um, Caucasian people, oftentimes like middle-aged. And so again, me coming from small town Illinois, like the stereotype is, you know, a homeless person in Chicago minority. is going to be a minority. Mm-hmm. And um, so here's these people, though, that just don't look like, I expect them to look, and um, they're just in this predicament. But in that, and it doesn't matter, you know, what, uh, you know, if they're a minority or not, but you just get to talk to them and, and hang out with them, and I don't know, it just, uh, it makes the, the, everything else, like all the stuff you study and all the work you put in, in that, in that light, it makes it more worth it, for sure. Mm-hmm. Um, like getting that, that Max guy, especially, you know, he's definitely got some obvious problems in in his life, but even just, like, sitting down, you know, while he's drinking coffee in the morning, chatting with just a couple other guys that he's kind of buddies with, um, you know, even if it's only for a moment or two, like, you just completely lose yourself in it. Of, yeah. Like, there's any, and you realize that like, there's no difference between me and this guy, you right. know. Circumstances have, for whatever reason, you know, not been good to him the past couple years, and and that's it. But um, but I don't know. You know, it just it, it makes you see see their dignity, see the dignity of the human person in a new in a new light when you experience something like that. That's one thing that whenever well, so like growing up in Metro Atlanta, you know, I had everything that I needed growing up. Everything was provided for me. Very 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 blessed. And whenever, you know, very Catholic, we would talk about the poor, it was always, you know, we have to go out and give back the things that we've received. Um, so thanks be to God, the uh, appropriate understanding of, you know, we're blessed and it's not anything that we've done, uh, but God's really just been very generous with us and it's our turn to give back. But going and working with the poor, in my mind, I always try to figure out the human flaw, if you will, of each individual homeless person, which is not the right thing to do at all. Mm -hmm. Like, I know when we were doing Night Fever, 
um, we had an experience with this guy, Bernie. And Bernie was homeless. And uh, it was just kind of like, okay, Bernie's, he's an alcoholic. He's got a drinking problem. And that's why he's out here on the street. So it's like I tried to equate where he is with this thing that he's done wrong, mm-hmm. in a sense. Like, some choice he's made. Right, some choice that he's made. But that's very, <clears throat> not contra, but it's difficult to reconcile with a lot of the gospel where Christ holds, not this person as a flawed person, but this person as a blessed person. Mm-hmm. Like God has a special place in his heart for the poor. Yeah. The story of Lazarus, you know, and the Beatitudes, or the, the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are the mm-hmm. poor. It's very, very clear about that. Like, that's always one thing that I try to do in my human flawedness. I, okay, this person is here because he did X, Y, and Z, and I didn't do that, so I'm good to go. You Some know? of the most fervent prayers I've ever heard are from inebriated homeless people. It's amazing. Like, you have a special place in God's heart. And I, it doesn't make sense in my brain, but it's, it's, it's scriptural. Christ was very clear when he told us that. Mm-hmm. So I guess I'm, I'm still trying to figure that out. Is why is this? I mean, they do. They have an incredibly close place in Christ's heart. You know, they suffer here on earth, um, and we don't necessarily always have to. But uh, I don't know. Do y'all have any light to shed on that? Well, it's one thing that crosses my mind is that, you know, going to El Salvador was an eye opening experience for me uh, when I went to the orphanage there uh, to learn Spanish. I remember driving in. Late at night, my flight got in. Late at night, my luggage wasn't there and stuff. It was big drama. So, it, um, the orphanage is like two hours away from the airport. So we're driving in ten o'clock, eleven o'clock at night. And uh, off of the highway, it's like a mile on a dirt road to get to the orphanage. And there's just kind of like these shanty kind of houses, tin roof. Uh, you know, not cardboard, but a step up from cardboard walls. You know. Um, and the road has obviously not been taken care of, you know. Uh, but it's it's a gravel kind of situation, but with ditches on the side for water. And when uh, we're driving by, and all you can see is what the headlights are shining on. And there's a human body in the ditch, face down. And I was like, oh my god. And the driver who picked me up at the airport was like, oh, un borracho. The guy was hammered drunk and just passed out in the ditch. And... He was just laying there, you know? It was warm out or whatever, you know? He's probably going to be okay in the morning, but... Uh, it, you know, you just don't see guys passed out drunk in the gutter that much unless you go to very specific parts of the city. You know? yeah. For the most part, we keep that stuff uh, separated from us or whatever, or there's, or there's programs to help people. But <clears throat> one of the things in El Salvador was that kids in the orphanage knew, I'm not going to drink, I'm not going to smoke, I'm not going to do drugs... Because if I get addicted to something, no one's going to help me. There's nothing going on here where I'm ever going to get out of that. That's a decision that once you make it, that's your life. You are a guy that sniffs glue or, you know, because they don't have cocaine. and stuff. I mean, it's like very basic addictions. I saw a guy uh, with a Gatorade bottle with shoe glue in the bottom of it, puffing it, and he looked like an alien. His eyes were bugging out of his head. He... Like, his humanity was barely visible in the way he was acting. And, you know, where's that guy going to get help? Uh, in the U.S., we have support systems. We have pads. We have places where people can go and get help if they're addicted to drugs, if they want help. 
stuff like that. But <clears throat> me being poor in the outside, I mean, like, if we wanted to be poor, to be in solidarity with them, it, it wouldn't just be selling our stuff. It wouldn't just be moving to a third world country or something like that. Because to be poor uh, in the true sense is to have no connection. You know, like the guy passed out drunk in a ditch in El Salvador. You know, who's going to help you, you know? If I make a terrible decision, or if I get kidnapped, or, you know, and, and robbed of all my stuff, I got people I can call, you know? The bottom line is people are looking out for me. But to be poor is to not have anything, and no one cares. Uh, that's, that's where Christ is, like, very much, like, the, you know, the mama bear in the Old Testament. Just, you, you come after his cubs, the, the poorest of the earth, the dirt poor, and he will completely ravage you, you know? That's God's anger and wrath in the Old Testament. It's not over sexual sins and the things that we think, you know, like, things we focus on so much, you know, the, um, sort of, uh, splitting hair morality things. It's like, when the widow and orphan aren't being taken care of, God gets really ticked off. Because, um, those people don't have anybody except him to look out for them, you know. And so, as a seminarian, studying to be a priest, you're going to act in the person of Christ, have the mind of Christ, have the heart of Christ. You get to know the poor, and you start to feel his love for them, you know, when you see somebody who's got no help. And you're, you know, father. You're the only one that's really, like, just going to love them for no other reason than that they deserve to be loved as a human person. Uh, you're not their family. You're not, you know, you have no vested interest. They can't do anything for you in return. Um, I don't know. That's all I have to tell you about that. But man, all I got to tell you about that. <laughs> you see how we generate emotional responses. Like there's a kid, like you see a whole class of kids and everybody's picking on the one little weak kid. You know? mm -hmm. That's the one you want to go to. That's the one you want. You want to push the bully out of the way. Mm -hmm. Hey, get your hands off. You know, that weak one. Little penny. Yeah, whoever. Connor. Connor. Little Connor. For right reasons, though. Yeah. But it's like, even that notion of, like, the dude who's in El Salvador sniffing paint out of a shoe. Mm -hmm. Like, how did Lazarus get to be where he was? Under the table with his sword and looking like death itself. You know, begging for scraps and getting none. How did he get there? Maybe he was, I don't know some crazy dude who spun himself into poverty in this terrible place. Like, he has this, he has a very special place there. Like, we have to not just have pity on that guy, you know. His pity is to, in a sense, sort of look down on them. But to love him, like, like Christ is, loves them, mm -hmm. you know. But it's like... Like, what if your brother so was in that situation? Your right. blood brother. Would you not go to the oh. ends of the earth, give yeah. all the money you had? You think I have that situation? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's a tough call because that that should incite some love within you mm -hmm. that moves you to action. It's sort of like that same thing from James. You know, where is your your love is without works? It's mm -hmm. not real love. He says in James, right? He says, "Those of you who say to the poor man who has no coat, oh, be warm and well fed." Bless you. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you guys are liars, you know? Yeah. You're not doing it right. Right, right. And another thing. 
I'll tell you what, when, when I went down to the uh, border, the Kino Border Initiative, uh, there's like a little Jesuit mission on the Mexican side in Nogales, Arizona. And it's nuns, mostly nuns, and a couple priests that take care of everybody that gets supported. That, you know, all over the Mexican border, there are these towns right over the edge, and people just get dropped off in buses. People get caught in the desert or arrested in the cities uh, that don't have papers. They get just dropped off randomly. Uh, they got no rights, and they're not American citizens, so they, they just put them somewhere. A lot of times they'll split up families to keep people, like deter them from ever trying to get in again. Um, you know, I'm an American citizen, and I benefit a lot from the country and its laws, but you go over there and listen to some stories of people whose kids were born over here, and now they're stuck here, and, you know, they've got no living here in Mexico, they're afraid of the violence and the mob, and, like, what did I do to deserve what I got? Uh, and whatever you want to argue about in Congress, about legislation and the economy and stuff, you, you look across the table at a human person who's, who's really dying on the inside because they can't be with their kids or because they got nowhere to go and they're like, why was I born? What did God, what was God doing when he decided to make me? Because I got nothing here. And you just, your heart goes out to him. What do you do? Um, well, that's just the way it is. I mean, you're born in Mexico and you broke the law. You try to come across. And I don't know. It doesn't fit neatly into a political debate. Well, that's the mystery of suffering behind all that. You know, why would God allow <clears throat> this experience of deprivation of himself? But I think most people can think of a time when they're in a really bad way, and that's the most fervent prayer they've ever done. The darkest hours of your life. You say, wow, God, I really need you. And the rest of the time, you're like, oh, maybe I need you, God, or say a Hail Mary every so often. Yeah. But to really consciously say, God, I'm inviting you into the center of this darkness that I'm experiencing. That. And maybe that's what people are suffering need. They need to be invited into that situation and say, okay, God is not capricious, arbitrary, mean. Mm-hmm. Why is this being allowed? What can you learn from this? And how can you invite God into the middle of this? And you have, sometimes you just have to be underneath. You know, you don't have to do that properly. Yeah, yeah. When I was in Haiti, we went one day to the outskirts of Port au Prince. And it was, I mean, it, I, don't, I think it was called. Jeremy? I don't remember exactly what it was called, but it was a bad area to the point that we had to stop at a school behind a gate and switch from our van to like a local one because they were like the area was getting bad enough that if they saw a, you know, a missionary van or quote unquote white person van, it was very likely they would try to rob it because. They would assume we had money with yeah. And so we went, we ended up going to this, um, this school after, you know, a little farther drive. And it was cool. So we got to work. We just kind of got to hang out with these kids for the day. There was a group of sisters <coughs> there that ran the school. And it was right. So the school was actually very nice. But then the, the fence next to it was in the slums, like the real deal slums of Port-au-Prince. And so this guy that was showing us around, he helped the sisters out. I can't remember his name. Might have been Walter. But he was this Haitian rapper. 
like he called himself a, a rapper from Haiti. And so I was talking to him, um, he, he spoke pretty good English, and he was kind of showing me around. And Anyway, he wanted me to go up, they had these water towers, and so he wanted me to go up, like climb up to the top of it with him. Um, and so I did, so I don't know how high we were, not, not that high, but we could see into the slums then from, from overhead. And it shook me up really, really, really bad, um, seeing that type of suffering and poverty. And, and so I was standing there with him, and, and he, was, he started telling me he had lived, just after the earthquake there, he had lived in the slums for like six months, and somehow got out. He didn't say exactly, but that doesn't happen very often. Um, and just some of the stories that he told from, from how it was living there were horrific. And I asked him, you know, what is, like, what did the people in that situation, what do the people of Haiti need, you know, from, from whoever, whether it's people from the U.S. or um, anywhere in the world. And he was, all he said was, like, you know, honestly, we don't really need money because government takes it from us anyway or whatever. He's like, the best thing you can do, like, just the fact that you guys are here, that you cared enough to, to come, like, means more than anything else you literally could have done. And that's actually one of the sisters out there. I guess no, not very many people come to that school because it's so far out. And one of the sisters was, was crying when we left, and she just said, thank you for coming. Like, no one, everyone always forgets us. Um, so it was just a, again, it wasn't, it wasn't even anything of me. <clears throat> Plan. The priest that we were staying with in Port-au-Prince had us go out there that day. But just that, I guess that's what compassion, you know, feels like or, yeah. or looks like. It's just, yeah. like, I, I can't actually do anything to, in my, in my American mind, I can't do anything to, to fix this right. for you. But, like, I'll come here and love you the best that I can in the time that I have. Yeah. And that's that strange call, it seems, in our day and age, is let's find the economic structure, let's find the political savvy, let's find the right human direction that we can get in there and fix everything with our money and our hands. Microfinancing. Yeah. yeah. Well, you see what they've done here, they've messed this up, and let me get a guy over there and fix it up. And but I think in that, I think a lot of people honestly believe that if we finally get it right, we can create this utopia. Right. And that's what it stems from. Right. Yeah. And, but, and, and I think what it, I mean, when you get to the heart of it, what do we make of suffering? Like, how do you make sense of that? Oh, yes. Why is there something rather than nothing? It's a big list. Yeah. Give me a couple. Give me a couple items. Oh, well, I definitely... Are, are we talking bucket list here? Sure. Well, okay, a list of things to do. I want to go um, ice fishing. I would really like to go ice fishing. I also want to go ice skating, uh, play some ice hockey on our pond that's frozen out there. I heard it was 18 inches, dude. you got to go more intense on your bucket list than ice Oh, wait, are we talking bucket list? Or is this <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. I want to ice skate before I die. I we can do that tomorrow, literally. <laughs> with very little cost. Dude, let's do that tomorrow. Let's go ice skating tomorrow. I heard that the ice on the pond is 18 inches thick. Like, you can drive a vehicle on that. Really? Bucket list. Yeah. Drive a vehicle on it. Yeah, Charlie had his truck. 
out on it. Oh, did he? Yeah, he plowed the pond <clears throat> so guys could play hockey oh, out there. Oh, dude, I'd be down good. to do that tomorrow. Honestly, I would. I'm gone all day. Okay, well, your list sounds lame. <laughs> be My list is go to the parish. That's a pretty cool list, I guess. Pretty good list. Yeah. Well, hey, doctor, do you want to give us some last words here before we go? It's a lot of pressure, Mike. I, don't I know. know. I know. Just say something. Well, you know, I've been getting more and more convinced of the word surrender here all the time. You know, my own prayers. Just surrender. Surrender sounds like um, an army that's lost in World War II. It's like, oh, we're surrendering. But you really think about it when a child's two years old, runs into his father's arms and says, love me. That's surrendering. I'm giving myself to you. Sends a quarter and says, I'm not going to do anything you tell me. They're just denying themselves the love of their own father. So surrender, that's the word. Hey, before we go, can we do an acapella little uh, uh, harmonize? Well, we can try. What word are we going to use? Um, so I did a play in high school. It was <laughs> called... Barbecue Soul. Barbecue Soul. Barbecue Three Dogs North are Juice, Seabisk, and Michael Metz. Conversations have been edited to sound smarter. Audio and transcripts of this episode are exclusive property of Mundelein Seminary and may not be rebroadcast without the express written consent of Major League Baseball. And down.